You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 2, God's judgment of sin. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. The Jews and the law. You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law, and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, But do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a 
true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Yeah, so at 5.37 p.m. yesterday, uh, as we were about to board a plane from the Gold Coast to Melbourne, um, I'm messaging back and forth with Pastor Jono, who's experiencing uh, a severe case of the flu over the last two weeks. And uh, it becomes apparent to both of us that uh, Jono should not preach and that I should preach in his place. And the great thing, and I think the whole way home, I felt this... um, sense that maybe this is uh, prophetic for us or um, just general good truth is that the reason that both Jono and I can do that is because we place no trust in the messenger, we place great trust in the message. So it's not the fact that Jono or I have great charisma or personality or any of that kind of stuff, it's that we have a great gospel that is faithful. We don't stand on the words of faithful workers, we stand on the Word itself and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's something our church needs to remember, even as we preach the Gospel in season, in out, as we're in the text each and every week, it's not Jono or me or Simon or whoever comes to preach that we trust in, we place great trust in God's Word because He is faithful even when we are sick and weary. Um, And I think that's a great encouragement for us. And so that means that I've had 12 hours to prepare and I have no lack because I could read out Romans 2 and 3 as we're going to do today and we would have absolutely everything we need and that's a great thing to have. But as I was, uh, I was on the plane from the Gold Coast, Sarah and I were at a conference all of last week, as I was on the way back there were two questions that sort of popped out for me from the text um, as we read it. Uh, dwelt in it and meditated on it and they're simple questions with difficult complex answers that each and every one of us needs to know deeply. The first one is, who are we? There is an incredible need for us to understand who we are and the second is like it, who is God? I think we live in a culture which has both confused who we are and who God is, and that has incredible detrimental effects on us. I'm a big fan of Instagram. Now, as I look around, most of you know what Instagram is. Many of you have Instagram accounts. Some of you are like, I have no idea what that is. Instagram is basically an app where you can upload photos to the internet to allow others to see into your life and allow unfettered access to your ego and narcissism to be fed. That's the reason it exists. Um, And so, uh, whilst we were away, you may have seen I put up a photo of Sarah and it was lovely. She was facing towards the beach and uh, I put up this nice, nice quote, and I might as well have put in a hashtag at the end, hashtag great husband, hashtag best husband ever, right? And the, the thing that every one of you misses out on is that the hour before that post went up is that Sarah had actually rebuked me for not showing greater affections for her and showing ambivalence towards her as I'm pursuing all this other stuff. Because we don't put that stuff up online. 
No one's uploading, just received a godly rebuke from my wife, hashtag sorrow, hashtag repentance, hashtag torn garments, right? We're laughing because we know it's true, right? We're not going to do that, right? We spend our whole lives hiding from difficult and horrible truth about who we are. And we put forward this Instagram image that does not describe us well. And the great thing about Romans 2 and 3 is that it gives us a great insight into who we truly are when you strip back all of the falsehood. And the great thing about Romans 2 and 3 is that not only it gives us a right understanding of who we are, it also gives us a great understanding of who God is. Because Romans 2 and Romans 3 reveals that when we are faithless, God is faithful to the end. There is nothing we need more in this world than a right understanding of who God is. We do not need more entertainment, more enlightenment, more education. We need to know who King Jesus is. And so that is what we're going to do today. And so we're going to uh, charge through a huge portion of Scripture. We're going through 50 verses today, probably more. And uh, so I want to pray for us, but I also want to encourage you, grab your Bibles, we're going to be bopping in and out of it, and uh, I want you to have it before you, so one, that you can follow along to where we're going, but also, like, when you grab your Bibles, underline everything that describes God. I think that would be a great understanding for us to do. Just describe the characteristics that come through for God, even when uh, Israel and the Gentiles are being unfaithful. I'm going to pray for us now. But uh, grab your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, that's now yours, especially if you underline stuff in it. Uh, Yeah, let me pray. Father, I pray this morning that we get a right understanding of who we are before you. That we strip back all that imagery that we present to the world and that we see ourselves as who we truly are before you. I pray that we gain a new insight into your character and nature, that we see you as glorious and majestic and powerful. We see you as faithful and kind and just. Father, please soften our hearts towards you this morning. Please deepen our dependence upon you this morning. Please illuminate our great need for you this morning. Drive us closer to Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen. So if you've been tracking along with us over the last couple of weeks, we started in Romans 1 about two weeks earlier, and Paul has laid down a smackdown against the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles are just a group of people who are not Jews, those who are outside the tribe of Israel. So that is, everyone who does not believe in God are the Gentiles. And I can just imagine the words that Paul uses to describe them. The Jewish nation will be surrounding Paul and going, yes, finally, someone's saying it with great force and power. You Gentiles are going to get it. Just, just consider the words he says. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil and they disobey their parents. 
They have no understanding, no faith, no love, no mercy. And although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but approve of those who practice them. And I can just imagine, as Paul lays down this WWE-style smackdown on the Gentiles, that the Jews would surround him with great encouragement to preach harder and longer and bolder, Come on, Paul, you haven't even talked about what they do in secret. This is just the stuff out in public. It's as if a primary school or secondary school fight has occurred and the crowd has come to cheer on the fight. It's as if people are posting the Michael Jackson popcorn meme as everything goes down. And the interesting thing in that Romans 2, Paul turns around and places his gaze directly at Israel. Let's read. Verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you pass judgment, uh, sorry, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Here is a devastating truth. No one lives up to their own standards. The very same measure that we judge others with, we cannot even meet ourselves. I studied psychology um, for a couple of years and I'm married to a psychologist and one of the things that psychology tells us is that when someone fails and when, when, when they view someone else failing, they view it through the lens of character but when they view themselves as failing, they view it through the lens of circumstance. That is, if I fail, if I fall short, if I do something wrong, that's because of all these different circumstances that occur. I'm busy, I'm tired, I'm weak. You don't know what happened to me the other day. But when that other person do it, they're a bad person. They're evil. We are not consistent with our judgment. The same standard that we hold is a rod that will break our own backs, according to Romans 2. An honest question that you can ask yourself, am I viewing myself rightly? Am I judging rightly? How often do I justify my actions through circumstance rather than character? There is a beauty about someone who says, that is exactly who I am. But by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, can you help me change? But rarely we see that. Rarely, what, what commonly we see is, well, you know, I'm busy and tired and my wife said horrible things about me and therefore that excuses my behavior and God says no. What we judge others with, we will be judged with. And so we go on to verse 4. Do you show contempt for the riches of kindness and tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Friends, one of the most astounding things that we will have to grapple with is that God's justice and judgment against us is abundantly kind. God is kind in His justice towards us. 
We live in a culture that struggles with ideas of hell, that struggles with ideas of God's wrath, that struggles with ideas about God's justice being poured out against sin, and yet the Scriptures say again and again that actually God's justice is an element of His kindness towards us. I love what uh, theologian R.C. Sproul says about this. Someone asked him about Genesis way back in the beginning. Someone said to him, well, wasn't God just being too severe? He's expelled these man and the woman from the garden, from being in the presence of God. Wasn't he just being too severe? They only ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And here's what R.C. says. This creature from the dirt defies the everlasting holy God. After which God had said that the day that anyone eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And instead of dying, Adam lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of the curse applied for some time, but the worst of the curse would come upon the one who seduced him and whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. Jesus was an element of God's kindness towards man that instead of receiving death as they deserved, instead God sent a saviour to crush the seed of the snake. God is incredibly kind towards us even when we are outside of His family, when we are outside of following and trusting and loving Him. And the reason for that is that His kindness is intended to soften our hearts. Verse 4, verse 5, sorry. God's kindness was intended to lead you towards repentance. God is kind towards us in His justice and judgment because He wants to soften our hearts. And here's the interesting thing. Instead of God's kindness leading to softened hearts, what often happens for us is that we want to hold on to both our self-righteousness, our element of being able to judge others and not judge ourselves, and we want to hold on to our sin. And God says clearly in Romans 2 verse 5 that when we do this, we are storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. Verse 5 says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. There will be a day when God's justice is poured out against the world and some of us will be astonished at what we find in our hearts, what we have stored up for ourselves because we are unwilling to yield to God's justice and His judgment. Because we are unwilling to say, well, I judge you like this, but actually I need to judge myself by the same measure. And the interesting thing, Paul's not even talking about God's justice and His law yet. He's just talking about our own levels of judgment. He's not talking about what God says is right and good and kind. He's just saying our own standards. And there's an interesting juxtaposition, like an interesting uh, combination, a, a sort of a, a comparison that Paul makes between Romans 1 and Romans 2. 
See, Romans 1 is all about the pagan Gentile. It's all about the person who doesn't trust God, who suppresses the truth about God, as Romans 1 says. Those who are given over to the desires of their hearts and to sensual delights and who do not love Jesus, do not follow Him, do not worship God. And then he turns around in Romans 2 and says, hey, you guys, you religious elite, you religiously active, you moral people, you're in the same boat as the pagan. And it's interesting that the word used in verse 5 for stubbornness and unrepentant, just trying to find it, the Greek word for unrepentant and stubbornness, sclerotes and amatenotes, which are only used when talking about idolatry. He says, for the person who follows all the rules and for the person who breaks all the rules, the same idol is there. For the pagan, maybe they give themselves over to sex and money and success and power and greed and chasing and worshipping that, but to the morally active, religiously dependent person, the person who trusts in their own goodness, they are not trusting in external things, they are trusting in their own heart to save them. And what Romans 2 delivers to us is that that is a faulty foundation. There is no idol that will save us, either we stand under Jesus or not at all. Verse 6 to 11. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then then for the Gentile. God does not show favoritism. The ESV, a different translation, translates it as, God does not show impartiality. He is a just judge. God is fair. He will render us according to our works. And it's interesting because some have said, well, this might mean, this might suggest, this might lead to, we can be saved by our works. Because it says in verse uh, 7, that those who by persistence doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality will give eternal life. But the rest of Romans just gives the context that no one does that. If you do seek good and do all these things, then by all means you will receive eternal life, but no one does that. Imagine, even by our own standards, imagine there was just an invisible audio recorder that followed you everywhere you went from birth to death and recorded every single statement, moment, thought by which you held up a standard for someone else to accomplish or by which you held up for yourself to accomplish. And then when you met God, the only judgment that, was, that followed was based on what you had actually held others to in this life. Does anyone think that they would escape the judgment of God? As Paul says in verse 3. He's not even getting to God's own law, God's own standards. He's saying we fail our own standards. We don't even live up to what we think we should do, let alone a holy and righteous God. John Stott says it like this. 
It says we work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behaviour of other people, whilst the very same behaviour seems not nearly so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. And I think what God and Paul are trying to say through this passage is not that good works lead to eternal life, but that good works are a sign and evidence of eternal life. In the same way that when we see an apple tree produce apples, we know there is life there. Not because apples produce life in the apple tree, but because apples are a sign that the tree is living and active. When people uh, persist in doing good and honour and immortality, it's not because those things have given them eternal life, it's because Jesus has transformed their heart and mind and affections to Him, and therefore they produce life-giving and life-affirming things. We go on, verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart, their conscience are bearing witness, and their thoughts may accuse and may defend them. This will take place on the day when God will judge man's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Here is the question that Paul is expecting. He's a great evangelist. He expects retorts and questions when he puts forward things. And the question is, how can people be judged according to a standard that they don't know? How can God hold people to account when he says those who do not, uh, are not under the law will perish apart from the law? And Paul says that we all know the law because it has been written on our heart. Whether you have heard the law, whether you have understood what God desires and loves and pines after, whether you have never heard anything, God has written it on our heart and therefore there is no excuse for anyone. C.S. Lewis says it like this in Mere Christianity. He says, everyone has heard people say things like this. How do you like it if anyone did the same to you? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. The man who says this is appealing to some standard of behavior which he expects the other to know. He has not read it. He has not imbibed it. It has been written on his heart from eternity past. And it leaves us without excuse. Our consciences are inbuilt compasses towards God's purposes. Now, sometimes, well, many of the time, we are affected by sin, and we'll see that in a bit. But Paul clearly says that sometimes our conscience will lead us into a right understanding of what God desires. And therefore we have no excuse. And man, because of this, there will come a time when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. If there is not a scarier verse in the book of Romans, I do not know it. It is one thing for God to judge our works at church and in front of people and in front of our friends and in front of our colleagues. It is a whole other thing for God to judge our secret lives. There is nothing outside of the scope or jurisdiction of God the judge. 
There is no secret lying. There is no secret stealing. There is no secret affairs. There is no secret pornography. There is no secret cheating. There is no secret whatsoever. God sees all, knows all. And if that doesn't chill you, then you may not be listening very well. That is a scary thought. That God, who will judge us and hold us to a high standard, sees everything. Verse 17. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you were instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, why do you not teach yourself? This is incredible. I, I can just imagine being a Jew listening to Paul right at the moment, going, well, you know, Paul says, uh, if I'm a Jew. Paul, if I'm a Jew, I know I'm a Jew. Right? I call myself a Jew, I was born a Jew, I'm circumcised, I don't want to show you, but I'm sure I could show you later, right? I'm a Jew. And it's interesting the things that he notes, these sources of Jewish pride. It says, if you call yourself a Jew, so if you rely on your nationality, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know how to approve of what is superior, making good ethical decisions, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, knowing that you have the truth and that there are others who don't know the truth, that you are a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These are good things. But they're not God. These are not things that we can trust in. For the Jew, they cannot trust in their nationality. They cannot trust in their circumcision. They cannot trust in their ethical decision-making. They cannot trust by the fact that they have been given the oracles of the Old Testament, the, 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 the Torah, right? They cannot trust in those things. They can either trust in God alone or nothing at all. And I think it would be interesting if we inserted ourselves into the scenario, what it would look like for us. Because Paul might say to us, we call ourselves a Christian, and we are sure that we are right with God, because we signed a card, or walked down an aisle, or prayed a prayer, or raised our hand. You remember that maybe one time you had strong feelings for God, and so you must have been converted. You've memorized dozens of scripture verses and you know the right theological answers to everything and you've led people to Jesus and the thing is, if you, do not, if you do not trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, it is meaningless. Here's what I mean by that. If we do not trust that his sinfulness, all of our sinfulness was taken up by Jesus and all of his righteousness was given to us and therefore we have nothing left to complete his task, all the scurrying, all the activity, all the teaching, all the praying, all the baptisms, all the conversions that we celebrate, it's meaningless. It's not the doing of these things is wrong. We love Scripture. We love prayer. We love talking. We love encouraging. It's just we don't trust in those things to save us. What Romans 2 reveals to us is that it is entirely possible for someone to enjoy Christianity and not Christ. 
it is entirely possible for someone to cherish the kingdom and not trust the king. And there are good things here, friends. Never let it be said that I don't love reading the Scriptures, that I don't love praying, that I don't love encouraging people, that I don't love evangelism, that I don't love prayer, but these things do not save us. You could pray every day from birth to death and not be in the kingdom. You could read the Bible backwards three times through and not trust the King. These things do not save us. And when we rely on our own actions or our profession of faith or our identity apart from Jesus, all we reveal is that we don't know ourselves very well at all. And that little sting at the end. You then who teach others, why do you not teach yourself? You who love the Scriptures, you who love the baptisms, you who love the prayers, you who love the evangelism, why don't you apply it to your own heart? I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it on the screen. As you read your Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Scriptures? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so that you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself as you read, saying to yourself, this is me. What is it saying about me? Allow the Scripture to search you, otherwise it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. There's a great danger, friends, if we do not apply the words to ourselves. Romans 2 is not only describing Israel, it is describing us. And we go on. In 22, or back end of 21, he says, You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you not dishonor God by breaking the law? And as it is written, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. The Jews had this great pride that they made great ethical decisions, that they were in the kingdom of Israel, that they had great national identity, that they were faithful, they turned up to temple and they sacrificed. And yet, what is the result? Stealing, adultery and robbing temples and desecrating idols. And God says, God's name is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. And we don't have to look very far to see dozens and dozens of Christian leaders, of Christian followers, who, have, who speak a good game, but follow Christ poorly. I was only reminded again and again the last couple of weeks watching Barnaby Joyce. It's a really poignant example. Someone who fought hard in the same-sex marriage debate for um, conservative ideals about family, only for it to have been revealed that he was having an affair and impregnated someone else's uh, wife or someone else whilst he was still married to his wife. There was no separation, no divorce. And when we do this, when we declare standards we don't keep we heap shame upon our heads and god's name is blasphemed amongst the gentiles i hope that hits you it hit me 25 onwards circumcision has value if you observe the law but if you break the law you have become as though you had not been circumcised 
If those who are circumcised keep the law, who are, those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written law and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And the circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but by God. And what we discover is that the great source of Jewish pride was trusting in the covenant God had made rather than in God Himself. They were trusting in the outward sign of the covenant, which is the circumcision, the mark that was to detail that the Israelites were the people of God without actually experiencing an inner circumcision of the heart, an inner transformation. There is no such thing as an external Christian, one who has the trappings of Christianity but no inward transformation of the heart. It does not matter if you are baptized by John the Baptist. It does not matter if you are a prayer warrior from the beginning. It does not matter if you can speak in Greek and Hebrew. It does not matter if you are a preacher of the church. It does not matter if you can partially counsel well. It does not matter if you can lead Bible studies excellently. It does not matter if you serve week in, week out, from birth to death. If you are not experiencing an inner transformation of the heart that comes through faith, it is meaningless. These Jewish leaders were boasting in their deeds and accomplishments, all the while dishonoring God in their conduct. Interesting thing. The hardest thing about trusting in our own good deeds is the sheer inconsistency of ourselves. The only thing that counts for anything is faith in Jesus. If God has given you a new heart in Christ and sealed you in Him with the Holy Spirit, Either someone is a Christian from the tip of their hair to the tip of their toes or not at all. It is not the trappings of Christianity that save us, it is Jesus that saves us. I love what uh, Romans 3 goes on to say. By the way, well done guys, this is a heavy load. Keep, keep with us. So 3, we're going to read 1 to 8. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? There is much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what if some did not have faith? Would their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath upon us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, but if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is deserved. Here's the interesting thing. The first eight verses of Romans 3 they are an answer to questions. They're essentially a Bible Q and A where someone asks a question and Paul answers it. 
So someone asks them, then what advantage then is there being in a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? If circumcision doesn't save us, if making good ethical decisions doesn't save us, if being part of the nation of Israel doesn't save us, what, 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 what value is there? And Paul says, there is value in every way, much in every way. They have been entrusted with the very words of God. There is a great advantage for the nation of Israel because they have been first-hand witnesses to God's grace throughout the entirety of history. That is an enormous advantage. The equivalent that I can imagine is being raised in a Christian home with a Christian mum and dad. The, 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 the advantage is not that God has promised to save them. The advantage is that for kids who are raised up in Christian homes, they have a first-hand seat to the grace of God working in a family's life. And that is not a promise that God will save. But that is an enormous advantage to see the gospel lived out day by day, week by week, year by year. And there's great faithfulness. God, even when we are unfaithful, when uh, we have Christian parents who do not pass down the gospel, who do not pass on the precepts of God, God will, God will continue to be faithful. God will pluck out people from himself for himself outside of Christian families. He will be faithful when we are not. But it's not a disadvantage to know God. And Paul goes on in verse 3. What if some of them did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? So because we're faithful and we're part of the nation of Israel, does that mean that God has been unfaithful? Paul's answer in verse 4, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. The faithlessness of Christians and Israel is not evidence of God's faithfulness. No, sorry, the other way around. It does not mean that God has not been faithful. It is a great evidence that God is faithful even when we are faithless. And verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? Is God unjust in bringing His wrath upon us? Verse 6, the answer. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? God will judge the world and His judgment is just. Verse 7. Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not say that we can say, let us do evil that good may result? Paul says, that is a silly argument, worthy of condemnation. God hates sin. God is against sin. There is no pathway for the Christian to enjoy sin so that God's grace may, God's glory may abound in His judgment. God will get His glory, but God hates sin. It goes on, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. What shall we conclude? It's interesting, the, the word under sin, it gives this idea of unrighteousness, an unright standing with God. And I think what Paul is getting at is that 
either someone is under sin or under grace. If we have a citizenship of our spirituality, there are no dual citizens. Either we are completely under the mercy and grace of Jesus, or we are under sin. Either we are trusting in His forgiveness and resurrection, or we are in sin. There is no part for us to play where we are somehow halfway into the kingdom. And Paul's astounding statement is to lead us to the recognition that whether we are pagans like in Romans 1 or the religious elite in Romans 2, every single person outside of Jesus is under sin. There is no partiality. There is no favoritism. We are either in Christ or not. It's, imagine, it's like imagining uh, three swimmers trying to swim from Australia to Japan. I don't know how far that is. A long way, probably, right? But imagine a championship swimmer, an Olympic-level swimmer who swims kilometers and kilometers every single day. And then imagine a mediocre swimmer, someone who swims for joy, but, you know, they're improving. And then imagine someone who looks like a cat when they are thrown into the waters, like flailing about, right? So the, the person who cannot swim might make it 50 meters and drown. And the person who enjoys swimming might make it a kilometer and drown. And the championship swimmer might make it 50 kilometers and then drown. It doesn't matter. They didn't make their destination. And so it is like us with right standing with God. We may do good, but we do not do good enough. We are not close to having a righteous heart and a right heart before God. And I think it's really interesting, verse 10 onwards, um, Paul details with great specificity the effects of sin on people. Now, I, I grew up um, in a youth ministry and I've still got connections to a lot of my friends and uh, one of the things we, we love to do with our youth ministry is talk about our sinfulness and our need for Jesus, but that wasn't always the case growing up for me. And so a lot of my friends go, yeah, I'm, I'm saved, it's, it's all good, whatever, I trust in Jesus, um, sin isn't that bad, I'll just keep doing this thing, sin doesn't really affect me that much. Paul says, what are you talking about? Sin has incredible effects on all of our being. Just read this with me, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Sin affects our right standing with God. We do not have a right standing with God because of our sin. Our sin has separated us from God. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. Sin has transformed our capacity to understand and cherish who God is. It is not our ignorance that causes hard-heartedness. It is our hard-heartedness towards God that causes our ignorance of who God is. Sin shifts our motives. It says in verse 11, no one seeks God. Just like Adam in the garden, we were ashamed of ourselves and hide from God. That is a result of sin. Verse 12, all have turned away. Sin has affected our will and our desire. There's a great song, Come Thou Fount. It says, I am prone to leave the God I love, prone to wander. There is a willful disobedience in our wandering. We are not uh, innocently wandering off into the woods somewhere, far from God. We are decisively determining our steps away from Him. 
because of sin. Verse 13, sin affects our throats and our tongues. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Sin affects our tongues and our words. Our words reveal the state of our inner self, whether we have hearts transformed by Jesus or whether we have hearts captive to sin. Our inability to speak truth, our inability to build up, our inability to encourage comes from hearts captive to sin. 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. Sin affects our relationships with each other. It is not because we are victims that we have broken relationships. It is because we sin that we have broken relationships with each other. Sin that we choose and cherish and delight in ruins our ability to live in peace with one another. That is why all the great ideas that politicians ever have will not work because the greatest need we have isn't for more or less guns. It is not for more or less armies. It is not for more or less wars. It is for hearts that have been transformed to Jesus. And until that day, we will not live in peace with one another. And verse 18 is the greatest indicator of what sin has done to us. There is no fear of God before our eyes. Sin causes us to lose our understanding of who God is. We do not have a right understanding of God. Growing up, I would often hear sermons and have conversations where people would talk about the fear of the Lord. And, you know, it's everywhere. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? And I, I, I had this conversation, and like, do you, like when, it, when it says fear, does it really mean fear? And people are like, no, it doesn't. Of course it means fear. It's just not fear of a mean and capricious slave driver or puppet master. It's the fear of being in the presence of someone who holds your very existence in his hands. The only reason that I keep breathing from moment to moment is that God has restrained his wrath against me, that he's restrained his justice towards me and allows me to breathe another breath. Every single moment is a moment of his grace towards me and the right understanding I have towards him is, yes, Father, if I'm in Christ. Yes, adopted if I'm in Christ. But I also understand that he holds everything in his hands. And so I approach his throne with trepidation especially if I'm not in Jesus. And where does this leave us? Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Who's under the law? Both the Jew and the Gentile. Whether they have the law written down in words or the law written down on their hearts, every single one of us is accountable to God. It says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, of, the law become, become conscious of sin. And I can just imagine the weight that you feel. Maybe some of you have zoned out because the weight of sin is too much. Or maybe the effects of sin that lead you to not desiring God, not seeking God, not understanding God, not cherishing God. But I asked a question at the beginning and the only one wasn't, who are we? 
Romans 2 and 3 give us the right understanding of who we are outside of Jesus. But it also gives us the right understanding of who God is. Think of the words that Romans 2 and 3 says to describe God. Verse 4, He is kind and patient. Verse 11, He is impartial and a just judge. God is kind and patient. And as we feel the depths of our depravity and wickedness, we should rejoice in the depths of His grace and mercy towards us in Jesus. The art of the Christian is not to dissuade away and to put out our thoughts of our sinfulness and to think less upon us, less upon it. Our task is to think how sinful we are and then let that lead us towards the grace that is abundant in Jesus. The glory of salvation is in the wrath of God, in the justice of God, because we know that every single portion of our sinfulness, every single portion of our wickedness, every single portion of our wrath, instead of being poured out to us in just, impartial justice, was instead poured out upon King Jesus so that every single person who trusts in Him, rather than their own goodness, rather than their own law-breaking, can have eternal life, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and stand before God, not as a slave master, but as a son and a daughter of the King. Friends, we need a right understanding of who we are because it leads us to have a right understanding of who God is. When we understand that we are sinful and broken and depraved outside of Christ, we see the mercy and grace and justice in His eyes. The cross only becomes wonderful to us when we realize it should have been us there first. But instead... My sinfulness, my wicked ways, every single portion of it was poured out onto Christ. And instead of receiving that punishment, I receive eternal life with Him. What a great promise. God is the kind God who pours out justice, not avoiding it, not ignoring it, but pours out His justice and receives His glory as sons and daughters trust in His Son. So friends, may I encourage you, encourage is too small a word, beseech you, implore you, stop the scurrying, stop the trusting in your own works, stop the building of idols and the worship of other things and the trusting of anything but Jesus to save you, stop it all and trust in Jesus. And that is all I have to say. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we pray that we have a right understanding of who we are before you. That we see our sinfulness, that we see our wickedness, that we see our evil, and we see the condemnation that was to be poured out on us, but instead was poured out on your Son. And we don't respond in despair or depression, but instead respond with great joy. Let the depths of our evilness, our wickedness, lead us to the depths of grace in Jesus. Let every single portion of us that trusts in something apart from Christ die and let us come to new life in Him. Let us be encouraged at the riches of His grace. Let us dwell upon His goodness and His mercy. Friends, I pray that the effects of sin 
would be reversed in Jesus. That we would know God, that we would have right standing with God, that we would have great affections for God, that we would have a great will for God, that our tongues would be changed, our lives would be changed, and that we would know Him as He is. Friends, I pray this not in the power of my words, but in the power of the Son, to the glory of the Father, through the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.